You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Eileen Miles. Paul. Eileen. What a what a pleasure to speak to you. And you're likewise, likewise. We have we've arrived. We we have arrived and we're having a, a, a phone conversation which is uh has become kind of exotic, hasn't it? Yeah, but I, I seek it out. I seek it out in my true relationships because it is so special. I mean, do do you use the phone a lot? I do. I do. I mean, sometimes it seems like I use it more when I travel than in New York. There's something about being in my apartment, being on the phone, that I really reserve a very special, intimate conversation. Oh well, I'm 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 delighted. Yeah. I'm I'm delighted, and uh, uh, pri- I feel privileged. But you know, I feel the the phone has become somewhat exotic, and yet I I I feel that to hear the grain of the voice is so important, and so much of our our conversations now. Uh, what so-called conversations happen with texts and email, where irony and tone are uh-huh. so difficult to get. I know. And there's, an, there's a bodilyness that gets lost, too, because I think we, through our pace and all our intonation and swerves, we communicate so much. And when that's gone... It's it's very flat. Well, we we bring our bodies to to a to a phone conversation in a way. I mean, even if we are in some sense disembodied, because I can't see you unless I would Skype you, which is something I I really abhor. I don't want to see you when I speak to you on the phone. I actually I- just want the voice. I want the concentration of the voice. But you know, I'm always reminded, and I wonder if this is a passage you know um, in in remembrance of things past of Proust he talks at the very very uh, just as the phone is really being created he talks about hearing the the bells from the cathedral playing um, on the other end of the phone call and imagining that he was there and I feel that that gift nearly of ubiquity is lost now that we can in fact be everywhere at the same time Right. If you get a phone call from New York, you you when you're away, you can hear sirens, and it's so refreshing, you know. <laughs> That's so interesting, um, Eileen. I asked you in advance. I mean, we don't prepare these calls at all, except I asked you for one thing, which you um, you frustrated me by refusing. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you know what, what I'm talking about, but people who might overhear our conversation wouldn't know. And I want you to right. talk about this frustration, this reason, you, to make it clear and then, and then you can riff off it. You, I said, well, you know, it has been nice in the past when I had Clive James or W.S. Merwin or for that matter, Ursula Le Guin or a number of, Jan Morris, a number of other people. They have read something and poets in particular Ben Lerner and others and you said no I won't read I will not I will not give you that pleasure and I think you wanted to frustrate me and I think there's a reason for it and I'd love I'd love to know more 
I, I, yes, yes, and I'm so glad we're talking about this because I feel like I wanted to actually be truthful to the to, to the what I think is the the authentic gestalt of poetry, which I think it, to some extent is a desire to put the world on notice. I mean, I think that's how the poem happens to the poet. I think that's how poetry occurs to most most of us. If you've ever committed a poem to memory or just were moved by a poem, then there's just lines of it in your head, and you'll be walking through the street, and suddenly it'll come up on you like a wash. It's like the, the, the sounds in the street that you were describing, the ways that the world shares itself across telephone wires. And so there's something immediate and fresh about poetry's place in our consciousness and it strikes me that you know as a poet i'm i'm if somebody's interviewing me or talking to me and they're like and of course we'd like you to read a poem or if you know a journal um and not all journals do i mean i think one of the reasons people are so excited about having poems in the new yorker is because it's a general it's a general publication that has all kinds of writing including poetry. But poetry still gets a very tiny little place. I'm sure that the designers have more to say about where poetry fits in than even the poetry editor. You know, it's sort of like it's a wee form, you know, and it just takes up a minute in our conversation. And I feel like it just has has no relationship to the true... Like, poetry, I feel like, is an art form of surprise. Like, I wasn't introduced poet to poetry through going to a poetry reading as a child. And even though I learned it in school, it was more when I found a poem in a book that I liked, and I memorized it, and I used it as a tool, and I realized, oh my God, this is power. And slowly, the way I became a poet was to start to kind of choose. Like, when I'm, when I see something in the street, when I hear something, I mean, there were many things I could have heard or seen, but I heard one thing, and that choosing is so exciting, and that choosing is poetry, and, and that's how a poet begins. And then you start to do that with your life. There's just a storm of language. There's a, you know, I mean, like you and I talking, once <laughs> once it's more than just me talking. I mean, it's it's so many words. But, you know, it isn't just you talking. It is me listening, which is something, which is something yes. tremendously active. I mean, I, I, I feel, I feel, um, the, the fact that I'm listening to you now riff on why you were not going to read poetry is for me a poetic gesture. Um, uh, and, your, and, and your silence, your silence is stanzaic. Your silence is a, as important as the fact that the poem doesn't fill the page that when the poet reads, they pause after lines sometimes. Like, all of that economy is poetry. And, and I feel like every conversation is really, you know, it's sort of like when we say Black Lives Matter, when somebody decided to call a movement Occupy, those are poetic choices. They only worked because of that selection, you know? And I feel like, so I just, I think I wanted to say no to the selection of this being poetry and that not being poetry. Your silence not being poetry, my talking not being poetry, but my poem being poetry. You know, I'm, 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 I've, I've reread recently, um, Ben Lerner's book, The Hatred of Poetry, and then, uh, realized that the Paris Review interview with you is with Ben Lerner. And I'm, mm -hmm. you, you know, I was so intrigued by, by, well, I'm, 
tremendously intrigued by Ben Lerner's work, who I've also had on a call like this very early on, and on his interview um, with you in the Paris Review. And I'm I'm wondering if what he claims for as a hatred of poetry, which obviously is, or perhaps obviously is, somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek um, title, if you, you subscribe in some way to the way in which he, he views poetry. Well, you know, I couldn't, I love Ben Lerner personally, and I love his fictions, but I couldn't read that book at all. That's interesting. Just, That's interesting in and of itself. I like he was talking about very mainstream poetry, and I felt like he was talking for people who weren't poets, in a way. Right. But yeah. I also, but I also, I, but I'm sure I applaud the sentiment of hating poetry and who better than poets to hate it we must hate it we have to hate it you know because otherwise we would be i mean like the idea of giving poetry a month because you know we all know that's kind of piss poor you know um well, that is, you know, that is, I mean, so many things come to my mind. One of them is, I had, I haven't had occasion to speak to many poets. And I remember the very first time I did on stage was with W.S. Merwin. And he came on stage and I admitted to the crowd that I hadn't read much poetry. And B- Merwin said, Paul, you have it all wrong. Uh-huh. Don't, don't read poetry read poems mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i i thought that was a very liberating way of talking which meant don't don't make it into this construct or uh, a month of make it part of a daily or or pleasurable rather than daily forget the daily make it part of a pleasurable or for that matter a painful routine which which makes me makes me think of just how much poetry now seems to have reemerged in this time of of crisis. Oh, I think I know. I think poetry, and also I think all the all the new forms we have are just places for language to escape um, the kind of you know, like the institutional control that it's normally had, and all kinds of poetry can be out there but if somebody said to me i don't read much poetry i would ask i would ask them questions too because it's crazy it's just not possible it's like nobody i mean like people people will say i loved your reading and i hate poetry you know and i think it's so i mean that's such a great compliment you know because it's like they just heard poetry and so they're kind of they're kind of selecting i mean it's like people don't say i hate music you know, it's sort of like such a large statement to say I hate poetry. And when it's somebody who's actually not familiar with the form, I want to ask them what poetry is and what it isn't. Well, it is in part, it is in part what you were talking about before, which is hearing it. Um, or as I was saying, when I was listening to you as an active form, I think something has happened to our ear. Um, it is not used enough uh, in some sense. Um, I think, you know, we spoke a little bit earlier, or at least I mentioned it, that we don't use the phone very much, but we, we, we text each other and we call that a conversation. I think the fact of not hearing it all around us makes it possible for the New Yorker and other publications to include a tiny snippet of one poem um, you know, as if as if it was nearly an afterthought. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas I think something something written on the, you know, something written on the wall. I mean, one still, you know, we still see graffiti and a piece of graffiti, something written on the bathroom wall, is just often so much more exciting to me than something I read in the New Yorker. You know, because somebody was moved to write it and say it. You know. You know, there there is this line, um, which which came to my mind as I was thinking about our conversation, um, where Williams, Carlos Williams says, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if if that speaks at all to what we're trying to address here. Namely, that something urgent emerges from a from a poem, and yet we look away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I think we look away because we're excited. Oh, that's interesting. And so you you tell me I won't read to you because that frustration is kind of productive. Because I think I think this is this is a much more radical. I mean, I think what you you cited Ben Lerner, and I think it's sort of like. It's so much more exciting for me to say I couldn't read that book of Ben Lerner's than to say these two books of his that I loved. It's sort of like we're in a we're in a moment of contemporary discourse where the worst thing you could ever say to a poet. I mean, Lynn Kilman is a friend of mine, and I've loved books of hers, and other books of hers I can't I can't read. I just can't read them, and that's because I'm a real my reading capacity is a real space. You know, our friendship is a real place. You know, and if it doesn't have resistances, then then there's no truth to it. It's sort of like, it's just like, we're just going to open up the vat. And, you know, it's like, as a writer, people are always wanting you to blurb their books. But what that means is that if you have any kind of career or recognition, you could spend every single day reading the books that are coming into you in a swarm. I mean, you must have the same. Oh, yes. Oh, no, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm always reminded when people, uh, ask me if I've read this and that, that they've sent to me. I'm reminded of what uh, a, a professor of mine once said a hundred years ago, he said, have I read it? I haven't even taught it. I mean, you know, please, I mean, there's so much. And, and this form of, of resistance, I think, is interesting because it's really a, a question that comes up less and less now, which is what constitutes taste? And, and you know, what do you, what do you really love? What do you really care for? What crosses your path that really matters? Yesterday, Eileen, I don't know if you've gone. I went to the Brooklyn uh, Museum to see the Bowie show. Have you gone? I saw it in Chicago. I loved it. Oh, it was just so, I just so loved it. I so loved it. I was so immersed. And what, what I loved was just this rapacious curiosity. Well, I thought what was part for me, what was exciting about the Bowie show is how not interested I was in it before I went. Oh, that's interesting you know, too. I was like, you know, certain songs of, I mean, I mean, I have friends who hold albums of Bowie's, which is like the Bible. I never felt that way. There were certain songs that described a moment. I can, if I heard fashion, there's like a room I would be plunged into in the 80s helplessly, you know, and so Bowie has that position. But I, for me, it was sort of like seeing an artist who pulls from all these different directions to, it, that gives you a complicated idea of what it means to be 
you know, a practicing artist over several decades who had some influence, you know. Um, it's in- again, I, I think it just leads to that no. It's sort of like, I think to say no is to love, you know. It's sort of like to go to a movie that you're sure you're going to hate, and then that, that kind of preparation of, of resistance means that the, the movie or the art or whatever will come in through places that you didn't even know you had. Like a cousin of my nephew, my nephew got married. And to me, that was the most perfect yes. Like I asked him if I could read a poem at his wedding, you know, and then I interviewed him and his wife. And not that I didn't know them, but I didn't know much, you know, and it was like, and nobody expected a poem at the wedding and nobody expected it from this aunt, but for hers to be called uncle, you know, and it was just like, you know, of course they framed the poem and it's on their wall, but that moment was so important. It was so important for me as a poet. It was such a gift for them to let me stand up in front of all their friends and be the weird poet. Remember, you know? You see, it, stri- it strikes me that what we're talking about also is um, expectation. Um, and um, the expectation that a poet will read a poem. The expectation or the build-up uh, that people give you when they say, you're really going to love that. Or worse than anything, an experience that I, uh, two experiences that I really dislike is when you feel um, rather mournful about something and people say, I know exactly what you feel, uh, which is a terrifying comment because if there's one thing, if, the, if there's one thing you don't know is exactly how I feel, I would even go further and say, I'm not sure I know exactly how I feel. And the second, just as bad, is when people before telling you a joke tell you that it's going to be funny. Right, right, right. Well, I think the first, the first to say I, I know exactly how you feel is to make a copy of what you've just said and then dismiss it. That's right. Like, they've kind of put you away by identifying. Um, in comedy, it's so funny. Just as people will say, I don't like poetry, when people go to comedy that isn't what they had in mind, they'll say, that's not comedy. You know? It's sort of like, that didn't make me laugh. Comedy makes me laugh in the same way that poetry is small and beautiful. But you know? The- and it's... The, the point about jokes, uh, to me, which I know that jokes matter to you, but the j- point about joke, jokes is also, um, a, a, again, um, it's, it's a question of emphasis and expectation. In a joke, analytically speaking, there is a point that you have to make and you have to get a punchline and there is an expectation that you will laugh. And if you don't, if you miss it, you miss out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the moment in another language where you realize you're really a foreigner. When you you could be sort of keeping up and going along and sort of thinking they understand you and you understand them, and then somebody makes a joke. Right. And you are just out there alone. And everybody's laughing and you're just sitting in there in your little pool of silence. I mean, it's so kind of social and cultural and, and kind of, um, it's, you know, it's really the, it's really the glue of society, the capacity to laugh at something or the incapacity is to, is to really sit you out there on your own little toadstool. That's right. 
You made a, I, I think, a link, um, at least it seemed to me, between resisting reading a poem and um, the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and the Occupy movement. How so? reconstitute that that argument um i mean maybe if i could only if i could only think about me too as 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 kind of oh god i'm you know i'm a little bit stuck here it doesn't it doesn't matter no i i can but i think better than reminding you of what you said um we'll we'll come back to it if it comes back to us naturally i think it's it's more more interesting in in that way um at this moment you the, the last book you wrote um was it was it afterglow it was Afterglow. It was a book about a dog. It was a book about a dog, and I'm more and more... It was a book about a, 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 a dog, which was your dog, and a book about a dog in its last moments. And, uh, and I'm, I'm... You know, I'm... I'm, I'm perplexed and, and intrigued by just how many writers and poets um, have... In some form or another, taken taken on the cause of dogs in some way as a subject for them to investigate. Whether whether it's you know famously someone like Mary Oliver, or more recently somebody who I also had occasion to speak with, like Laurie Anderson. Mm-hmm. And I'm 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 curious what what that um, that voice affords you, and 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 why. I think to to give voice to somebody who doesn't speak to to somebody we, that we have an enormous um, personal relationship with that that inhabits our lives in so many public and private ways. Somebody that the other people it's weird. I mean, like to have an animal is to be kind of identifiable in a completely different way. Like there are people that I quote know that know my dog's name and they don't know my name. Right, and that feels entirely acceptable to me. Um, and and my, you know, because so much of my relationship with my dog is was, and my current dog is connected, is conducted in silence. Um, I think that that all those moments of knowing and thinking and feeling just like are like yearning to speak. You know, um, I mean that might be that might be the um, that might be the political moment to to inject me too because i think that it you see i knew it would come you see i i was sure this is why digression is so important and not having a strict pass is important because things come back to us and they come back to us because we're talking to each other i mean i think that um this you know like this there's something there's something very uncanny about having the wrong president you know, I mean, it's just like, I have to admit, when, when people were vying for, you know, there was, there was Bernie, there was Hillary, there was this guy, Trump, and, and people, you know, and I, and I was a Hillary person, and, and, you know, and I think people were horrified because, 
they had ideas about why she wasn't the per- perfect candidate. But nobody I knew thought Trump was the perfect candidate. But there were people who were so left that they thought it would be somehow reasonable to vote this guy in to see what would happen. And I think we're all living in what has happened. And I think that one of the uncanny results, though, of that moment is me too, because we we had huge, huge of having a female president. In fact, to my mind, she actually did win. You know, I think there were interventions of all sorts that, that caused the present result. And as, as, you know, as this guy was sailing into office, of course, he said enormously, I mean, he's kind of like the abuser in chief. He said some enormously abusive things about women and how his relationship to them. And we all heard that and watched that and thought that that was, would matter. And the thing that's so completely uncanny is it didn't matter. In fact, it excited a lot of people. I mean, I think that it actually didn't hurt his base. It kind of, and I think so, it, the most, in the same way that he was such a, I mean, he's, the guy is showbiz. My, my take on Donald Trump is this is this is a man who probably like Hitler in another life he would have been an artist. Right. Well, uh, yes, Hitler, if he had nope. been good good at art school, would have continued there. Right. And if I think if Trump was allowed to be an actor or to go to theater school or take acting class or had had anything other than his own father's super businessman super ego and his idea of masculinity, and he's he's such a cartoon of masculinity because it's a deep compensation. And so I think that like. We, I mean, it's like, sadly, I'm going from the silence of dogs to the silence of women. But it's, but, but we have to speak in relationship to this being this inconceivable moment of having this kind of vile clown in the White House. You know, and it, you know, it took, it took movie stars. It took women who had had so many private moments of, you know, being shamed and manipulated. But, but the Me Too, of course, is that. Me too. I mean, every woman I know has had those moments, you know. And I think one of the things that's really exciting and interesting is that feminism, it's the biggest disconnect in feminism is in generations, which is to say that, you know, the beautiful younger woman is always rewarded. And as you hit 30, 40, 50, as you get older, I think there's a way in which every woman experiences a certain ghosting. Like if your career, if your work isn't taking space, then you'll be very aware of the fact that your beauty is losing space in that same moment, you know? And, and, and I think that what's interesting is that, you know, most of the most vocal Me Too people are young, you know? It's sort of like, I'm not, I mean, I'm not getting sexually, I'm, I'm, I'm having the effects of being female in my life still, and I will to the day I die, but people aren't making, people aren't interfering with me in the way they did when I was a cute 20-something. And it's such an opportunity for females and and men. And men, men, I was going to add, because because don't don't leave us out. To say, to say that this is, this is, um, this is something that I stand with, you know, it's like, as a white person, if I don't stand with people of color, However, they want me to stand with them. I, I, I'm missing an opportunity. If, if older feminists don't say, I'm, I'm, me too, I'm with them, I'm part of this history, then it doesn't happen. And I, you know, like, I went to a comedy show the other night, which I have to say, Hannah Gadsby, an Australian, um, 
queer lesbian comic and so she kind of came on and she was very bumbling and kind of like she's from tasmania that's even a joke in australia you know she's a lesbian that's sort of a joke and then suddenly you know she just kind of bumbles her way into suddenly making an incredible statement of of you know of, of the violence she actually experienced in her life it was like you're waiting for comedy and instead she went someplace actually heroic and harsh and strong that that is what makes uh comedy so so strong and so unexpected i don't know if you've seen uh this show which you can actually watch on online by Patton oswald uh, uh called annihilation i have not seen that but let me just tell you one sorry thing. sorry i interrupted you but i just it's I was, yeah I was, it's totally that she just suddenly put it on the men in the room and said You white guys, particularly you white straight guys, this is the moment for you to stand up. This is the opportunity for you to realize that we're, we're, this is a different, the paradigm is shifting now. It can shift. It must shift. And it's, and, and men have to kind of man up and take that. And I mean, it's like if I'm at a dinner party and there's four people and three are female and one's male and he sits at the table and does all the talking, it's like, What is the point in the evening when I get to say, do you understand that you actually think that you should be doing all the talking here? You know, it's kind of like, it's suddenly politics is everywhere at this moment. It is, it is, it is, it is. And, and those are the shards of hope. I mean, I, I recall so much that in, in years past when I, when I taught a little bit, Uh, it was so clear how differently men asked questions in classes than women did and how much more they spoke and how much less they, they, they listened, which was, you know, something that, that was always, um, always present on my mind. But you know what, what else surprises me tremendously is the Me Too movement, not only as it's playing itself out in America, but as it is being played out in places like in France. And I'm so amazed by the strange attitudes that seem to permeate uh, the, the old country. Well, I think that women forget that it's like, you know, it's like... Um Catherine Deneuve yeah. begets that at a certain point, a beautiful, old, a famous older woman is just an honorary man. She's just a white guy. You know, it's like she thinks that, that it's like somehow or other, she kind of forgot whatever was wrong with being young and beautiful, you know, and she's just standing, she's standing with Roman Polanski. And I mean, and, I mean, that's what was amazing with it. I mean, this Hannah Gadsby was saying, Picasso hated women. Can we say this? This is a problem with his work, you know? This is a problem with going into an art gallery and seeing rooms and rooms and rooms of naked women as if this is naked, this is normal. You know, and it's not the women's nakedness that's wrong, it's just that it's all women, you know? I read, Eileen, uh, a comment of yours which struck me deeply, where you say that New York is a great place to be devastated. Is it funny for you to hear it said back to you? Of course, of course. And I mean, I think it's, of course, it's absolutely true. I don't know what I was feeling in the moment that I said it, but I feel like New York is a great place to do anything because there's so many different ways for it to be received and expected. You know, it's a great place to, it's a great place to really get drunk. 
and it's a really great place to not drink at all and to see the see the city through those eyes. But of course, to be devastated and to be brokenhearted, it's like you suddenly then confront this kind of living list of uh, other people's pain and other people's faces. There are days that just feel shaped by a feeling, and I don't know if it's my feeling or their feeling, but the city is just like this pageant of stuff and, you know, attitude. And I mean, New York is a very open city. You know, it's just like people, people will talk to you. People will, you know, um, give you directions, give you the wrong directions. You know, they'll <laughs> intervene. People are ready to intervene, which is That's... kind of amazing considering how much everybody is sort of on their way at the same time. Yeah. On their way and, and, uh, busy and, uh, and waiting and tired and all of those things at the same time. What about, and, I, what about, and what about? A lot of lostness too. And yeah. so I think when they see, people see lostness, they're willing to gather and, and affect it somehow. What about Iceland? Yeah, what, I am so dying to go back. Have you ever been to Greenland? No, and I want to. I mean, that's very, that's like really high on my list of places. Me that I too, want to go to. me too. And I've been invited to go. Maybe we should go together. I've, I've, I've people, you know, have said so, so many times, you must see Greenland while you still can, because obviously the, the, the world, um, is changing in those ways. And God knows how long Greenland will remain what it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with Iceland, the thing that I found that was so amazing was the kind of the oneness of the, I mean, people, I mean, people spent, speak many languages because anybody who's somewhat sophisticated in Iceland, that it seemed like most of the people go away and come back and go away and come back. So they speak many languages, but there they go speaking Icelandic and all their rivers have Icelandic names and all their mountains, they'll be like, that's Eagles Mountain, but then there's Eagles Saga. And so the kind of the, the unity of the the poetry and the language and the land and the, the names, I mean, like, whereas America, our heartbreak is just, you know, our, our rivers are all native names. You know, the names don't, they don't speak to us. I mean, they speak to us as beautiful sounds, but they don't speak to us as what they meant originally because those people don't, you know, don't have power in our culture. So there's so much, it's like there's so much loss all over the face of America that we, we can't even we can't even take in day in and day out. Well I hope you I hope you go get to go back to, to Iceland and I encourage everybody to, to to read your book, The Importance of Being Iceland. Um thank you. I, I um in in closing yes. th this conversation with you, Eileen, um I'm, I could take it in so many different ways, but I, maybe I'll take it in this surprising way, or perhaps it won't be surprising at all to you. Mm -hmm. I, I, I read somewhere that you have a passion and maybe a love and an interest, at least, in a writer that matters greatly to me too, and that is Robert Walser. Um, yeah, yes, yes. So why? I've why, why, why you? I mean, I know why me, but tell me why you. He's, he's, he's so mercurial. 
I mean, I heard about Robert Walser before I ever even read him. And when he was described to me as this writer who would change moods and feelings from paragraph to line to, you know, you would think that the piece was about, I mean, it, it would often be a walk. You would think the piece was about this. And by the time he got to the end of the walk, it was about many different things. And he was someplace else entirely. And so there was kind of an amazing way he had of maintaining a mood and then filling it with so many different things. Um, and so there was just like, he's sort of a river of transition. And I think when I heard about him and then when I read him, I realized I could write long books because I didn't have to keep being the same person. Um, I didn't have to keep being a woman. I didn't have to keep being a man. I didn't have to keep being a dog. It's just as long as you keep flowing, which is what he's so good at, you can keep pouring completely different things. And, you know, there's a kind of bait and switch, the listener or the reader We'll go along with it because it is wonderful. When you mentioned taste earlier, I thought you said pace, you know, and I think it's his pace is so kind of chimerical, you know, and I, that's you know, to me the pace that I want to live in, you know, and, a world full of surprises and twists and turns. And, and pace and taste, but pace, coming back to pace, um, you know, it's p perfect that you, you mention a walk because one of Valza's very famous and wonderful stories is called is called a walk and the way you were describing valza made me immediately think about what i experienced yesterday namely the bowie show which is all about persona and and being so many different things and not being identified certainly not identifying yourself as one thing but containing multitude containing so many different ways of being in the world which makes the world such a more exciting place when you are all those different things. Mm -hmm. And after you see Bowie, see Zoe. Zoe Leonard has an amazing show. Oh, I will go. I will go. I, I love the fact we go from Bowie to Zoe, from taste to pace. Um, Eileen, what a pleasure it was to riff with you. And thank you for not reading a poem. <laughs> My pleasure. I'll do it anytime. <laughs> Take good care. Have a good day. You too, Paul. Bye-bye. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. And I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo <laughs> seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months... Uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at instagram.com slash criminalbroads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there! Thank you.